0: Welcome to your breakthrough blueprint. I'm your host, Becky Oste, a trauma informed marriage coach. After a decade of failed efforts, I transformed my marriage, parenting, business, and health in just six months by learning how to repair my nervous system and move trauma out of my body. And now I'm here to help you do the same thing. Get ready to hear inspirational stories and walk away with tangible guidance on how to design your blueprint to your breakthrough life.
1: to have you back for another episode and just grateful for you finding this podcast worth your follow and even this episode worth your time to hang out with me for a bit today. Honestly, I've been waiting like a kid on Christmas Eve. So excited to record this one for you guys. I'm so passionate about what I'm bringing you today because it has been the single greatest game changer in my life. Today, I want to have a chat about the silent but deadly epidemic of shame, which might sound like such a buzzkill (laughs) to you, but it's actually one of the most hopeful, transformative, potentially breakthrough topics I can think to unpack. I'm going to give you the tools to offer yourself, as well as all of your core relationships, the transformation that we need to break free of this poisonous gas we're all unconsciously breathing in. So, the reason I'm so passionate about this topic is because when I step back and just take a look at our society, you know, the world we live in today, this fascinating, interesting, confusing, unusual, and miraculous human experience we're all having, what I see is a collective group of extraordinary individuals. Caught in this fog, or as Tara Brock puts it, this trance of shame, of not enoughness, of bad self and bad othering. In other words, caught in this chronic self-criticism and blaming others cycle. We overfunction to prove our worth, and then we're terrified to look at, let alone expose the full picture of who we truly are at our most authentic, aligned, grounded, and integrated selves. So before we unpack such a loaded topic, I'm all about finding a collective definition. So you and I are vibing on the same page. So I'd love to hear how you define shame. Always feel free to DM me because your feedback matters. And I actually take time every week to get into my DMs and respond to you like a real human. But for me, this is how I personally define this dirty word of shame. You know, from my years of research, personal healing, client case studies, and scouring the internet on the topic of shame, in my humble opinion, no one says it better than researcher, psychology professor, and best-selling author Brene Brown. If you haven't heard about Brene... She's the go-to leader and trailblazer in the study, research, storytelling, and healing in our modern-day understanding of shame. And her simple definition of shame is this. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. The Intensely Painful Feeling of believing that we're flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. But what I love in her definition, which you don't find in any other places if you pull up just a Google search on shame, is her mention of love and belonging. You know, there's this teaching that comes from Buddhism that I teach all of my clients, and it's known as the second arrow. What Buddha taught was the first arrow that pierces us and hurts us is this collective experience of human suffering, something that none of us escape. We all have different pain, you know, whether it's grief or jealousy or selfishness or uh, greed, like these are all things that cause suffering. But the second arrow, the second arrow of shame, it's this arrow that we come around and shoot ourselves with that says I'm bad for having the first arrow. So it's not just that I'm suffering with this grief or I'm suffering with this insecurity or I'm suffering with this jealousy right now. It's I'm bad for suffering with this or what's wrong with me. And that's the second arrow of shame. You know, an example of this in my life, I have had a unique and beautiful and you know, twisty, turny roller coaster relationship with my mom over the course of my life. There is amazing healthy parts of our relationship and then there's some not so healthy parts. And what I've noticed at different, you know, periods in our relationship is I would starkly, deeply resist any kind of physical touch or affection from her. She's not the most touchy feely cuddly person on the planet but sometimes she would you know go in to snuggle me or hug me or want me to give her a a massage or brush her hair or things like that that I would have this immediate knee-jerk reaction of like I can't touch you and I didn't know why But not only would I flinch and resist at different periods in a relationship, but then I would hate myself for flinching and resisting. The shame spiral would begin of like, what's wrong with you? You're a terrible daughter. You're so mean, you know, what's the deal? And that wouldn't help me be any more loving. You know, it wouldn't help me be affectionate. And this is something that many of my clients struggle with as well in their intimacy with their husband. You know, this cycle, this dynamic is so prevalent, yet someone talked about that when their husband initiates any kind of affection, not just sex, but even just, you know, slapping your butt in the kitchen or trying to give you a hug or a kiss, like there's this immediate flinching and resisting and tensing up and they don't know why they do it. And then they feel terrible, like, oh, my gosh, I'm a terrible wife. Like, what's wrong with me? This is... My one wifely duty, you know, is like to be there for my husband sexually and I can't even, you know, be there for him. I just am afraid or it's painful. And there's this shame cycle. It's this second arrow. So the second arrow has just become our normal language in our coaching program called Root to Rise. It's a a transformational container for women in six months to take their marriage from dying to thriving. And so, you know, this is just part of our lingo now is the second arrow. We all notice it and now we know how to identify it when it's hitting us. You know, I'm convinced that the single source of all human suffering whatever ways you're suffering, you know, may be different than mine, the single source of all of it can be traced back to a severed sense of love and belonging. And the route to reclaim our fragmented families and the fractured fibers of our very being can be summarized in just one word, and that's homecoming. Coming home to our body, our breath, our God, so that we can restore holistic harmony on the deepest cellular, subconscious, and spiritual level. This, for me, is healing. You know, this restored intimacy with our very selves is the medicinal balm, the top-shelf prescription, the most potent treatment plan on the market that I have found for eradicating this individual and global disease of shame restored intimacy with ourselves. Homecoming. A very common question that I get is, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Does anything come to mind for you? You know, they're similar, but understanding the contrast can help us navigate the unavoidable pain that comes with life while throwing off the unnecessary pain that we often add to our load. Life does not have to be filled to the brim with suffering. And we'll unpack that later as well. But the main difference between shame and guilt is that guilt is flexible, you could say, and it's helpful. It's a psychological discomfort when we know that we've acted in a way that doesn't align with our core values as a person. It can lead to a wake up call of, oh, wow, I'm sorry. Or how can I set myself up to act in a more aligned way next time this situation arises? It's natural. So wired into us, you might say. Think of guilt like a friend in your passenger seat, just letting you know when you've made a wrong turn so you can get back on the right road. Shame, on the other hand, is not flexible nor helpful. It is constricting and damaging. Shame is an intensely painful experience of believing that we are defective, damaged, or bad in some way, and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It doesn't lead to constructive action or growth, ever. It actually sends you into a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn mode. You can think of shame more like someone in your passenger seat berating you for making a bad turn, and instead of telling you what road to hop back onto, they begin cussing you out, calling you an idiot, a terrible driver... And then, just for fun, since shame is at it, continues to mention what a bad wife, rotten mother, ugly person, and lame friend you are. Speaking of driving, (laughs) I'm going to drop a confession to you right now because why not? Invulnerability dissolves shame anyway. And (laughs) please send me a message if you've ever done this before. It will continue to heal my shame. But when I was in high school, I was speeding home after school. And this cop was driving in the other direction and I immediately slammed on the brakes and did the whole, tried to play it cool while I'm holding my breath and gripping the steering wheel like a robot while peeking into the rearview mirror and just praying he doesn't pull a fast U-turn. I turned into this like literal three-year-old who just snuck a cookie and stuffed it in her mouth and tried to pretend like you can't see these chipmunk cheeks and crumbs on my lips. So that was me. But that's literally exactly what happened. The cop pulled a U turn, the siren goes off, and like a good law abiding citizen, I gently pull over and reach for my license. Except not that is not what I did. I did not do that. When the cop pulled a UE and I start hearing the wee wee, you could say my nervous system went into flight mode. I turned a sharp right into the first road I saw, then a sharp left, then another sharp right, until I lost him. And so to this day, by definition, I guess I'm still a fugitive on the run. And that's my confession for now. Much more juicy ones to come. But this is an example of shame. Guilt would have pricked me, but it also would have led me to pull over, own my speeding, accept the consequences. And with some forgiveness towards myself, do better next time. Shame sends you running from the cops, even when those cops are perceived and not actually chasing you. Shame senses danger, whether or not danger is actually present, and all shame wants to do is hide. Shame, some would say, is more of a social emotion, a fear of losing societies or someone's love and belonging. Guilt is more of an individual emotion, an indicator that you've veered off your own path. Shame sends us into survival mode, you know, a nervous system reacting to protect you from danger. But guilt can be experienced in a nervous system that's totally safe and calm, still grounded, able to act in alignment by tapping into the part of your brain capable of coming up with a creative solution. So let's peel this one back a little deeper. Whether you're a science nerd or not, just having a little basic understanding of what your body is biologically wired to do in threatening situations can help you unload so much unnecessary shame. You go from walking around all life long, constantly thinking something's wrong with me, I'm broken, not enough, to oh wow, there's actually nothing wrong with me, and my body's doing exactly what it's meant to do. The part of our brain known as the prefrontal cortex is the rational part where consciousness lives. Processing and reasoning occurs here, and we make meaning of language here. When shame is present, your brain responds as if there is a real physical danger in front of you. When shame is activated, we enter into a fight, flight, freeze, or fawn state, which can result in the prefrontal cortex shutting down. So an example of this, let's say I walk into the room and I'm wearing a dress that's not typically my style, a little out of my comfort zone, but decide to be bold and show up to this party anyway. As soon as I walk in, let's say I see somebody look at my dress and then give me this just dreaded look of judgment, just super judgy look. And then here are four ways that I can experience shame in that moment. We're going to call it fight shame, flight shame, freeze shame, and fawn shame. So fight shame says, well, F you, Sally. Who invited you to this party anyway? Flight shame is, oops, I think I forgot something in the car. I'll be right back. And you run to the car when you didn't forget anything. Freeze shame. You literally freeze at the entrance and don't even notice when someone says hi to you. And then fawn shame You go straight up to Sally and you start acting super sweet, complimenting her, trying to get her to smile at you, all from this subconscious energy, this self-protection of I need to win over her approval. And these are the four main types of trauma responses. And they're actually not bad at all. They are a sign that our body is working and doing exactly what it's designed to do, protect us at all costs. You know, from an evolutionary standpoint, this is how humans for centuries survived life-threatening, like, bear-in-your-face circumstances. Before our modern-day nuclear neighborhoods and drive-through curated Starbucks frappuccinos on the go, people at one point lived in the wild and needed to literally fight lions, tigers, and bears to protect themselves and their family from being mauled to death. So today... You know, many of us in the Western world, especially, don't live even close to a world like that. And yes, there are still circumstances of potential physical threat to our life, like we talked about in my first solo episode, these big T traumas, abuse is prevalent and real. But a lot of the time, the threats that our body is signaling us to protect us from, you know, danger is the core human need for love and belonging that's the threat most of us are facing it's not lion tigers and bears it's this severed sense of love and belonging our body is designed to go in and out of different modes you know we're not meant to be in this constant state of peace and calm at least not on this earth not in this lifetime not in this realm the goal is actually not to get rid of triggers once and for all the the pinnacle of a healthy, integrated working nervous system just knows how to come back to homeostasis after the threat of danger has passed. Like one of those squishy balls that you squeeze and then it slowly goes back to its original form. That's the goal. The goal is not to never be squeezed. Life happens, we're humans, that's the world we live in. But for it to know how to go back to its homeostasis so this is good to know so we can set our expectations you know, correctly, because when we begin the healing journey and we do start to have real progress and genuine breakthroughs, we now know that when we fall back into our old patterns of surviving and coping, this is not even close to a sign of failure. It does not mean you've landed, quote unquote, back at square one. How many times have you said that? You know, think of it like a mountain. I love this example. Imagine going up a mountain and you're circling. You know, you start at the base and then you circle around, making all these loops. Every time you circle to one side of the mountain, let's say the north side, you're going to have the same view, but it's going to be from a higher perspective. And so you're not circling around the base the entire time. Every time you're getting a little higher in elevation, and that is what healing is like you're going to come back to the same things you're going to be triggered by the same things but every time with a little bit higher perspective and wisdom and tools if you've done the work right and by right i just mean it's working for you there's no one right way there's no one path of healing that has a monopoly on all the other paths of healing it's your unique blueprint and you finding what works for you so there is not One example of any human in history who's ever crossed the finish line of triggers on this side of heaven. Nobody who's reached, I am trigger free. You know, we think of our, you know, epitome idols of healing and enlightenment and groundedness. And we think of Gandhi. It's often one that comes first to mind. But did you know he was terrified of public speaking? like terrified. He's one of the most quoted humans in history. And he would have, you know, sweat, armpits sweating, you know, nervous system activated anytime he got up to speak. One of my favorite meditation teachers, her name is Tara Brock. You know, she shares very openly just about her humanness and the way she still gets triggered by you know, the state of um, the world today and where our economy is at and, you know, violence against each other and her fear of appearing stupid when she has to ever do anything that has to do with technology. You know, this is a woman that's changed so many lives and offered so much healing and is so radically self-accepting and self-compassionate, but also has her triggers, just knows how to move with them and through them. And then even freaking Jesus himself, you know, it says at the very end of his life when he was being led to the cross that he was agonized with sorrow to the point of death. He was literally sweating blood. Like if that's not a nervous system activation, I don't know what is. So to recap before we move on, these different modes that our bodies are designed to enter in and out of to protect us from danger are not a sign that the system is broken. Rather, it's a sign that the system is functioning exactly how it was designed to do. The problem only comes when this hypervigilance, this anxiety, and chronic restlessness becomes so deeply ingrained, so repeatedly experienced, and habitually practiced, that we get stuck in this mode of survival and can't seem to snap out of it. Because We live in a society just breathing in constantly the silent carbon monoxide of shame. We're unconsciously shaming ourselves, shaming our husbands, shaming our children. We get stuck in this perpetual trauma response. You know, we're caught in a constant mode of reactivity, hyperarousal, survival, and self-protection. It's like the alarm system the circuit is tripped and the alarm bells are blaring, and we don't know how to turn them off. And we literally can't remember the last time we weren't triggered. And then the cherry on top is that when this state becomes our norm, peace actually feels threatening. Like safety feels elusive, harmony feels boring, silence feels like torture, rest feels like torture. You know, we need chaos and constant motion to feel alive. Then, if that's the cherry on top that we're afraid of what's healthy because we're so used to what's toxic, the sprinkles on top is that we shoot ourselves with that damn second arrow of shame for wondering what the hell is wrong with us for feeling so out of control. This is the savage cycle of shame, the shame Sunday. (laughs) So, have I depressed you yet? Is your (laughs) buzzkill alive and well? No, guys, I promise you, just the consciousness surrounding shame is half the battle to stepping out of the trance. So if you've stuck with me this long, you're you're already halfway there. So pat yourself on the back for even letting this seep into your awareness. And now let's transition. I want to leave you with the tools to offer yourself as well as your core relationships to break free of this poisonous gas we're all unconsciously breathing in. So what can we do? We understand now we've all grown up steeped in a society of shame. We're all designed to go in and out of these emotional states and responses. So the action we can commit to practicing is learning how to meet our triggers with radical self-acceptance and self-compassion in a world where everyone else is throwing shame on top of their already painful and inevitable experiences of human suffering. So for this, we're going to phone a friend. I'm going to call on the decades of study conducted by Brene Brown to shed some light on what has created a modern day movement of successfully dissolving shame at the global and individual level. And I wish she was actually hopping on here right now, but I'm just going to reference her work. One day, though, I will have Brene Brown on this podcast. I declare that right now, manifesting it. (laughs) But at the time of this recording, we're only on episode five. So I'm just going to sit down, be honored to get to serve you solo in the meantime. So let's start with this. These are Brene's three pillars of shame. We all experience shame as number one. It's universal. It's collective. It's a primitive emotion shared by everyone, unless they completely lack empathy or the capacity for human connection. Two, it's not easy to talk about shame. Even mentioning the word shame, like how many times have I already mentioned it in this podcast, can lead to an experience of the emotion and evoke a strong sense of fear. Notice, how does your body even respond when I say that? Shame. How does it feel? It can literally activate your senses. You start to shrink or feel hot or just you feel this this pull, kind of this weight. And then pillar number three Talking about shame brings a sense of control, and that control gives us the strength to overcome our feelings and move forward with our lives. Brene says shame derives its power from being unspeakable. So ignored and avoided, it goes beyond an epidemic, which is just an outbreak affecting a limited region, and into a pandemic, spreading fear, encouraging negative behavior and thinking, and perpetuating generational trauma at the global level. You know, of all the millions of dollars in research and decades of case studies of the most resilient human beings across the globe, the single most potent healer of shame, according to Brene's research, the secret to shame resilience is almost too patty cake for us to even find it worth our respect the single most potent healer of shame it's empathy empathy and if you're like me you're like okay cue the eye roll right now empathy sounds too soft to us it sounds weak we see you know pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps as a symbol of strength we were born and bred to suck it up and muscle through it and grin and bear it and good things happen to those who hustle and I get it this was me for all of my adult life and after all the promotions and free company cars and accomplishments and trauma I'd survive like this collective personal badge of honor that I'd carry around with me I was wondering why I literally couldn't take a deep breath was on the brink of a nervous breakdown and wondering how all my massage therapists kept telling me they've never worked on somebody so tight in all of their practice. So when I first started working with my first marriage coach, I remember telling her how much resentment that I carried, how my blood constantly felt like it was boiling, how I was so secretly and silently critical of my husband, snapping at my kids. And do you know what she suggested? she suggested me putting my hand on my heart and practicing speaking words of self-compassion to myself. And I literally told her I was mad at her for saying that. Like, she asked me to be honest about what came up when she said that, and I told her, honestly, I hate that. I just feel angry hearing that. That feels so uncomfortable for me. I don't know why. I just don't like it. Until I started... After that coaching call hopped off, started to lean into meeting my own edges and leaning into what it would feel like to do the, in my opinion at the time, the stupidest, most ridiculous, childish practice, putting my hand over my heart and speaking to myself kindly. And now the way I speak to myself and the amount of genuine grace and energetically aligned empathy I'm able to meet my husband, my kids, myself, my family, my friends with blows me away because I know how loud my inner critic has been for so long and I know how loud the criticism towards others has been for so long. And for me, this was the start of what led to this path that saved our marriage. It opened up the door for repair and connection with my kids. Uh, Personally, I've learned to play again and enjoy and experience pleasure, breathe, you know, all the things that I've had. This year and breakthroughs in every single area of my life stem from this one single source, the radical self-empathy and self-acceptance. Brene says empathy creates a hostile environment for shame. It can't survive. Shame cannot exist where empathy shows up. Empathy is like the light switch that sends the shame cockroaches just scattering It's like the water that instantly swallows up a burning flame. But we can also get empathy really twisted, especially those of us who are already highly and naturally empathetic. We think empathy means taking on other people's emotions and feelings without any boundaries for ourselves. You know, companies who are client-centered and service-oriented Provide workshops on compassion fatigue for a reason. You know, true empathy can be defined as using our own experience to understand others' thoughts, feelings, and behaviors from their perspective without judgment. And in Brene's best-selling book, Atlas of the Heart, she says, Boundaries are a prerequisite for compassion and empathy. We can't connect with someone unless we're clear about where we end and they begin. If there's no autonomy between people, then there's no compassion or empathy. It's just enmeshment. So this is empathy. But then a question that often follows this subject is, so what's the difference between empathy, sympathy, and compassion? So think of it like this. Empathy breeds emotional connection and fosters healing through... This, I feel you, I hear you, I see you without judgment. Sympathy, Brene argues, creates some emotional distance. When we sympathize, we don't take their perspective. We just feel sorry for them. We don't connect on a deeper emotional level. We only react to what they feel. It's usually our default, you know, feeling towards people. It's the response that we get when... Let's say you lose a loved one and someone's like, at least they lived a good life or at least they're in a good place. It completely ignores the emotions you're experiencing in that moment. It's almost like, glad I'm not experiencing that. Sorry, you are. Can create distance. Compassion is more about the action you offer someone in their suffering. It's empathy grounded in action. Daniel Goleman says, true compassion means not only seeing the pain of others, but being moved to relieve it. It's the hug you offer to the grieving widow. You know, the meal you bring over to the exhausted new mom or the invitation you extend to your best friend when she's having a hard time in her marriage and just wants to come over for ice cream and chick flicks. Fun fact, research indicates that compassion and empathy use different regions of the brain and that compassion can actually combat empathetic distress. So if you're burned out by giving empathy and you feel tapped out, energy sucked, compassion can actually combat that. For example, we've all got that one friend, you know, that's always stuck in a chronic state of chaos or suffering. And every time you hang out, with her, there's another volcano that's erupted and you feel like you're constantly listening and empathizing and, you know, doing your best but taking on her feelings and then noticing you leave her presence completely drained, like energy sucked out of your soul and resentful. You know, you're human. You can only offer so much empathy. Compassion, though, which is empathy in action, can help you combat the burnout because it accesses the part of the brain that allows you to feel empowered, able to do something to affect the situation. I remember my good friend Sarah right after college. She got a job at this high-end law firm in downtown Seattle, and she was taking on cases for victims of domestic abuse and high-profile crimes. And Sarah is one of the most empathetic people I know. And also one of the most vibrant, energetic people that I've ever met. But that first month at this new position, I had never seen her more drained and emotionally depleted in my whole life, like a level beyond exhausted. Like when you looked into her glossy eyes, you just saw this deep cellular and spiritual level of exhaustion. And it had only been a month and she was already burned out. And it's just so easy for us to fall into this, especially those of us who are naturally gifted, empathetic, healing type. It's a gift this world needs, but true empathy requires the presence of solid boundaries. And she actually went to a workshop on compassion fatigue that her law firm offered. And, you know, she was able to do so much better after that first month, but especially after seeing how quickly and easily she was able to burn out. You know, empathy is not feeling for someone, it is feeling with them. This is how we stay open and compassionate while preventing ourselves from feeling emotionally trampled on by those around us. Brene actually says that the most shocking part of her decades of research is actually finding that most people who, the, or the people who had the strongest boundaries were the most compassionate and loving people. So another dictionary pause here. What are boundaries? Well, what they're not is 30-foot walls or a sign that tells other people to F off, although that may be exactly what you're feeling. Boundaries that protect your peace while fostering the deepest connection possible with another human being are defined by Brene as this. Boundaries are the distance at which I can love you and me simultaneously. You know, many of my clients will ask, how do I even know where to start with knowing where I need to begin setting boundaries? And I tell them, look to where there's resentment in your life. Because where there's resentment, that's a clear sign your boundaries have either not been expressed and or respected. When I first started trying to practice boundaries in my own life, I remember making like lists upon lists of all possible scenarios that would crossed the line for me and how I would respond, what consequence I would give. But then in the moment of when I actually got triggered and my husband or my kids or whoever, you know, it was crossing a line for me, I'd be like, crap, what was that boundary I said I'd use when this came up? So that was confusing and not helpful. But what was helpful was when I entered, you know, this online group coaching program that taught, women how to save their marriages by moving trauma out of their body. That was my first introduction to somatic work. And my coach, her definition, her name is Soraya Bastion. She's amazing. Her definition of boundaries was just one. And it was this. She says, if I feel safe, I'll be close. If I don't, I won't. If I feel safe, I'll be close. If I don't, I won't. That phrase was a game changer for me. In my client group now, we say, in safety, scoot close, without safety, scoot back. Simple, effective, like uncomplicated. It's a way of setting boundaries based off of our own unique body and how it's feeling in any given moment. It doesn't have to be set in stone. It can be fluid. We're humans. We're not robots. Life is not predictable, right? We wish it was. So you might think in your own life right now, who is someone that you care about that you wish to offer empathy to? And is there any resentment that you notice towards that person? If so, how could you create some boundaries in this relationship? And this might be a like, I have no idea. And if that's the case, DM me. You can help for free. I don't mind giving out advice on boundaries. So, guys, when we practice this genuine empathy towards others, we take part in what I see happening on such a large scale right now. And that is really just seeing the reversing of so much generational trauma and so much collective consciousness, more than I've ever, you know, studied or seen in the history of human evolution. Empathy is your secret weapon to taking part in dissolving and evaporating this toxic, contagious experience of shame. Jesus nailed it when he said, the greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And what I find is that for most people, loving our neighbor comes way easier than loving yourself. In my experience, my practice, my observation of the most successful clients who have passed through my program, the biggest key to their breakthroughs in their marriage actually does not begin with learning empathy towards their husbands. But before and above all else, it's unlocking the key to empathy for themselves. Because how can you offer true empathy anyway, unless you not only know it deeply for yourself, but are able to embody it in your own mind, body, soul, and spirit? I swear to you guys, this episode in practice has the potential to change the entire the entire trajectory of your life. So, before we land this plane, I want to give you four ways you can start evaporating the epidemic of shame in your life by practicing radical empathy. And to make it easier to remember, we're going to call it heart, mind, body, soul empathy. So, these are the four ways you can practice this this week way number one, heart empathy. So this week, when you notice the thoughts coming up of self-aversion, self-blame, self-loathing, I want you to place your hand on your heart, even if you feel like a fool, like I did, and practice saying to yourself what you wish someone would say to you in that moment. So for example, let's say tomorrow I'm in a rush to get the kids fed before hauling them out the door to soccer practice, and I notice the thought come up of, ugh, I'm failing my kids because I'm heating up dino nuggets and mac and cheese instead of making them something organic and fresh. So I'm going to stop, hand over my heart, say to myself, Becky, you're doing a good job. You are a good mom doing the best you can with the resources you've got right now. And as long as the kids are fed and loved, you've done more than enough already today. So that's heart empathy, hand over heart. Number two, mind empathy. This week, when you notice yourself on social media and something you see triggers you, maybe it's that mom who is cooking her kids better meals than you or the friend who just got engaged while your marriage is failing or whatever it is, offer your mind some empathy, a little act of compassion by choosing to unfollow them, considering unfollowing them. Not from a place of spite, not a 30-foot wall, but from a place of You know what? I'm on a mission this week to protect my peace above all else and anything that sends my mind into negativity costs me too much. Okay, that's number two, mind empathy. Give your mind a kiss this week and unfollow anything that brings down the vibe. Number three, body empathy. Choose something to do that nurtures your body this week, even if it's just putting it on the calendar to actually practice later. So maybe this is scheduling a massage or doing a yoga flow or going for a walk outside. You know, here in Virginia, the weather just got so nice out. It's like 80 today and I am loving my neighborhood walks. So maybe it's that or maybe it's taking a nap or eating something healthy or dancing with your kids. Just anything that if your body could talk, it would say back to you. Wow. Thank you for that. That was so kind of you. How did you know I needed this? body empathy. Last one, soul empathy. Notice this week what lights up your soul and what sucks the life out of you and just simply honor that. Some of us might be in a job or relationship or situation that drains our energy right now. Your empathy here might look as simple as, wow, my kid uh, asking me the same question for the 346th time in five minutes, that is really draining for me. <laughs> Just recognize, notice, and acknowledge. What does this do? This validates your experience instead of shooting yourself with that second arrow of, what's my problem that I'm about to lose it on my child? Like, hello, it's understandable. Anybody in that situation would lose their mind. Guys, life truly does not have to be filled to the brim with suffering. You know, pain and triggers will be inevitable in our journey through life, but there's so much extra weight we've been carrying around unnecessarily by sleepwalking our life away in shame. And when you begin to become aware and offering this simple gesture to yourself, It will be the beginning of the most transformational breakthrough, lasting, liberating year you've ever experienced in your life and in years to come. So send me a DM with your favorite takeaway from today so I know how to continue tailoring my content to best support you. And from the bottom of my heart, I am rooting for you. I love you and thanks for listening today.
0: Thank you so much for spending your time with me today. I love and appreciate you so much. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and leave us a rating or review to help others find the show. To learn more about working with me or joining the I Do Breakthrough community, head over to my Instagram at Rebecca Lee Oste, where you can learn all about my program in my bio. And please send me a DM with your takeaway from today. I'd be honored to connect and know what landed for you. I hope you have an amazing day and I'll chat with you next week.